0: Well, I'm going to talk today about the relationship between history and nature uh, in Marx, Engels and Darwin. Uh, It's been an enduring subject because uh, Engels aligned uh, Marx very much with Darwin and throughout the 20th century that tended to be uh, the standard view. So anyway, I'm going to put put something forward which is rather different. At Marx's graveside in 1883... Engels associated his great friend's work with that of Darwin. He claimed that, quote, just as Darwin discovered the law of, the de- of development of organic nature, so Marx discovered the law of development of human history. This association was reinforced in the 20th century by the publication in 1931 of a letter supposedly from Darwin to Marx politely rejecting a proposal to dedicate him to him uh, the second edition of Capital. Even for commentators at the time, it was a mystery why this proposal should have been made in 1880, which was seven years after the book had appeared. But commentators from Isaiah Berlin onwards accepted the dedication story. It was only in the 1980s that the myth of Marx's proposed dedication to Darwin was finally laid to rest, as a result of careful research by Margaret Fay. It turned out that the 1880 letter was addressed not to Marx, but to the notorious partner of Eleanor Marx, Marx's daughter, uh, Edward Aveling, who had proposed to dedicate to Darwin his newly completed textbook, The Students' Darwin. In this lecture, I shall argue that Marx's theory of history contradicts Darwin's conception of nature in ways which cannot be reconciled. The question then arises, why did Marx in the 1870s apparently acquiesce in Engels' asserted alignment between the two theories, and why was this alignment between Darwin and Marx quickly accepted? This is a more important question than it might at first seem for the idea of the continuity between the two theories underlay the possibility of establishing a convincing coupling between Marx and an increasingly emphatic form of determinism, or what Engels called the materialist conception of history, in the last 20 years of the 19th century. Engels' admiration for Darwin was clear. In his pamphlet, Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, published in 1882, Engels had already praised Darwin for dealing with, quote, the metaphysical conception of nature, the heaviest blow by his proof that all organic beings, plants, animals, and man himself, were products of a process of evolution. And this was an elaboration of an argument that Engels had already put forward in the Anti-During in 1878. He says, In nature, amid the welter of innumerable changes, the same dialectical laws of Motion force their way through as those which in history govern the apparent fortuitousness of events, the same laws which similarly form the thread running through the history of the development of human thought and gradually rise to consciousness in thinking men. In Socialism, Utopian and Scientific, this pamphlet, he also sanctioned the extension of quasi-Darwinist conceptions into the understanding of modern industry and the world market by asserting, it is the Darwinian struggle of the individual for existence transferred from nature to society with intensified violence. It has commonly been claimed that that Engels, in later years, created a distorted version of Marx's thought, but the claim is generally made rather vaguely. George Lichtheim, for instance, asserted without much detail that the philosophy of the later Engels was heavily indebted to positivism, while Shlomo Aveneri claimed, quote, the origin of Engels' views were to be found in a vulgarized version of Darwinism and biology with the Hegelian terminology as a shallow veneer. I shall argue that the difference between the assumptions of Marx and Engels are not satisfactorily explained by references to Darwin or positivism. Such differences were already present in the mid-1840s when Engels and Marx first met. And they clearly, therefore, preceded uh, any German or European impact made by Darwin or by the positivist, positivist philosopher August Comte. The affinity with Darwin and his desire to align him with Marx came easily to Engels. He had already adopted a conception of man as a natural being from the time of his closeness to Owenism, the followers of Robert Owen. During the two formative years he'd spent working for the family textile firm in Manchester between 1842 and 1844, when he also met up with Marx. Although uh, he had consorted with uh, Bruno Bauer and other young Hegelians in Berlin in 1842, his Hegelianism was relatively superficial. Engels' distinctive voice emerged not within the young Hegelian circles of Berlin, but rather in Manchester. It was there that he regularly attended Owenite debates and became more conversant with Owenite philosophical assumptions voiced in the Manchester School of Science than with the philosophical tradition of German idealism. In 1843, Engels declared his closeness to the Owenites, or the English socialists, as they were called, with whom in 1843, quote, he agreed on almost every question. What particularly drew Engels to the Owenites was their opposition to competition, particularly in economic life. The essential characteristics of competition was the separation of interests. In trade, the aim was, quote, to buy cheap and sell dear, and thus to create diametrically opposed interests in every exchange. Free trade would make this system universal. This ignominious war of competition had done its best, to dissolve nationalities, to universalize enmity, to transform mankind into a horde of, as it was called, ravenous beasts. It would go on to produce the dissolution of the family through the factory system. The Owenite criticism of competition and commercial society was built upon the prevailing assumptions of Anglo-French uh, sensationalism and materialism in the 18th and early 19th century. Man, according to this account, was an animal, a natural being who pursued pleasure and avoided pain. His or her character was shaped by the environment in which he or she was raised. As Robert Owen himself put it in his book, The New View of Society, in 1813, man was born with a desire to obtain happiness and also endowed with faculties which enabled him to, quote, «receive, convey and compare ideas». The ideas themselves, however, came from outside. The knowledge which man receives is derived from the objects around him and chiefly from the example and instruction of his immediate predecessors. Owen's main law was that the character of man is formed for him and not by him. Improvement would be brought about by the removal of harmful religious ideas, by better method, methods of education and the increase of scientific knowledge. In this way, changes in the environment would lead to a transformation of human nature and an increase in human happiness. But Engels went beyond the Owenite critique of competition in two ways. First, by following the French socialist Proudhon in ascribing the contradictions of political economy to the corrosive logic of private property. and secondly by following uh, the German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach in relating the development of private property and competition to, quote, the unconscious condition of mankind. What distinguished man from animal in Feuerbach's theory was not consciousness, but what he called species consciousness. Man's lack of species consciousness, his loss of humanity, was ascribed to, quote, the inversion associated uh, with uh, with religion in Feuerbach's theory of abstraction or in the radical gloss added by the Hegelians like Engels and Moses Hess with the establishment of money and private property. In the critique of political economy, which Engels wrote for the deutsch franzosische Jahrbücher in 1844 and which first attracted Marx's attention to the subject, Engels argued that for the past 80 years, as a result of competition, trade crises had arrived just as regularly as the great plagues did in the past, and they have brought more misery and immorality in their train uh, than the latter. This constant alternation of overstimulation and flagging goes on unendingly, he wrote. This law is purely a law of nature and not a law of the mind a natural law based on the unconsciousness of the participants. But it would finally result in a social revolution such as as, has never been dreamt of in the philosophy of economists, as a process of of self-destruction would usher in a new world. Engels wrote, The great transformation to which the century is moving, the reconciliation of mankind with nature and with itself if the origins of Engels' enthusiasm for Darwin could be traced back to his earlier Owenite conceptions of man as a natural being propelled forward by the promptings of nature, what, conversely, explains Marx's much more reluctant uh, acknowledgement of Darwin? There is no doubt that Marx, probably at Engels' prompting, sent Darwin a complimentary copy of the second edition of Capital, In 1873, it's also true, no doubt, that he and his family enjoyed the discomfort that Darwin had created for the conventional Christianity of Victorian society. But the idea of a deeper intellectual affinity between the two thinkers is forced. While there is good reason to believe that Engels' writings about history and nature could, from the beginning, be strongly aligned uh, with Darwin's later conception of natural history the same could not be said of Marx. The best that Marx could observe in relation to Darwin's origin of the species was that, quote, Darwin's book suits my purposes in that it provides a basis in natural science for the historical class struggle. But when prompted by Engels' enthusiasm to take another look at the book, his acknowledgement was somewhat backhanded and his stance was rather ironic. He says... He said, it is remarkable how Darwin rediscovers among the beasts and plants the Society of England, with its division of labour, competition, opening up of new markets, inventions, and the Malthusian struggle for existence. Marx showed much more enthusiasm for a book written uh, a a year or two later by a man called Pierre Tremont, "Origine et transformation de l'homme et des autres êtres. Origins and Transformation of Man and Other Beings. This appeared in 1865. This book, he argued, represented, quote, a "A very significant advance over Darwin. And he went on, its historical and practical application uh, were far more significant and pregnant than Darwin, especially in the finding uh, that... um, especially in its finding that nat- that nationality possessed a basis in nature tremo claimed that the physical features of the earth were responsible for the differentiation of the species and secondly that merely transitional forms encountered rapid extinction in comparison with the slow development and subsequent fixity of the species in response to marx engels wrote dismissively in October 1865, that there was nothing to Tremos' theory because he knew nothing about geology and was incapable of historical critique. And had, his letter added, that stuff about the nigger Saint Santa Maria, a Senegal missionary who claimed that black people descended from white people and that whites turning into Negroes is enough to make one die of laughing. But Marx, despite Engels refutation stuck to his opinion tremo's basic idea about the influence of the soil is in my opinion an idea which needs only to be formulated to acquire permanent scientific status and that quite independently of the way tremo presents it moreover in a, a week later despite conceding some of Engels' points about tremo's geographical no, geological howlers and seriously deficient literary historical criticism, Marx insisted to his fan, Dr Kugelmann, that the book represents, with all that and all that, an advance over Darwin. Leaving aside his particular enthusiasm about Tremo on the influence of the soil, what needs to be explained was Marx's expressed distance from Darwin. Just uh, Just as in the case of Engel's, Marx's attitude had deeper roots. This was not the expression of passing criticism, but the reiteration of a philosophical and political position Marx had held since the 1840s, a restatement of the fundamental distinction between nature and history, which was present in his work from the 1840s. Marx's approach offered a sharp contrast to the naturalistic version of materialism, espoused by the largest radical and socialist groupings of the mid-1840s, whether the Owenites in England, uh, together with Engels, or the followers of Étienne Cabet in France. Their starting point, standard in England from the time of Locke through to Bentham, prevalent among the uh, philosopher and the ideologue in France, as well as the followers of Spinoza in Germany, was a conception of man as a natural being, a contrast above all to the orthodox Christian emphasis upon original sin. In this approach, man was a product of his environment, a consumer governed by his appetites and needs. By improving this environment through better education and more enlightened attitude towards reward and punishment, it would be possible to transform human nature and increase the extent of human happiness. Marx's alternative which was elaborated in the so-called Economic and Philosophical manuscripts of 1844, was to apply the insights of German idealism to the understanding of labour, to recuperate its emphasis upon activity and man's position as a producer. Most striking was the connection made in these writings between two areas of discourse hitherto unrelated to each other, on the one hand, the discussion of what was called the social question, the plight of the proletariat, which had developed in the 1830s and 40s, and the other, the world-transforming significance accorded to Labour in Hegel's Phenomenology of the Spirit. By making this connection, Marx identified socialism with human self-activity, as it had been invoked in the idealist tradition following the philosophical revolution accomplished by Kant. Just to give you a very quick notion of Kant's idea, Kant's position had been clearly elaborated in an essay of 1786, which reinterpreted the story of the fall as a parable about man's escape from a natural condition. And Kant says, despite the yearning to escape the wretchedness of his condition between him and that imagined place of bliss, Restless reason would interpose itself, irresistibly impelling him to develop the faculties implanted within him. It would make him take up patiently the toil which he yet hates and pursue the frippery which he despises. Man's departure from that paradise was nothing but the transition from an uncultured, merely animal condition to the state of humanity from bondage to instinct to rational control. In a word, from the tutelage of nature to the state of freedom. If Kant and Fichte had already challenged the passivity of the image of man as natural being, it was in The Phenomenology of the Spirit of 1807 that Hegel built upon this idealist inheritance and translated it into a vision of history. According to Marx, Hegel had grasped quote, the self-creation of man as a process. And in so doing, he said, he had grasped the essence of labour, the creation of man as the outcome of man's own labour. Man, as Marx wrote in 1844, was not merely a natural being, as socialists like Engels and so on believed, but a, quote, human natural being. His point of origin was not nature, but history, Unlike animals, man made his activity the object of his will. He could form objects in accordance with the laws of beauty. Thus, history could be seen as the humanization of nature through man's conscious life activity, and at the same time, the humanization of man himself through the forming of the five senses. History, therefore, was the process of man becoming species being and the basis of man's ability to treat himself as a universal and therefore a free being. This idealist tradition was crucial in focusing upon the capacity of human subjects to resist or override natural desires or needs and to submit those impulses to rational scrutiny. It was what was meant by the term spontaneity in the idealist tradition, that is, inward self Determination, a concept which was present in German philosophy from the time of Leibniz at the beginning of the 18th century, and which became the centerpiece of Kant's conception of practical reason later, later on. Its crucial political implication was that individuals might shape their actions not in, just in pursuit of welfare and happiness, but in the establishment of morality and right. One of Hegel's crucial achievements in the phenomenology was to show how the concept of right might extend beyond the conscience of the individual and become embodied in institutions, in interpersonal relations and form the basis of what he called Sittlichkeit or uh, ethical life as it's translated in English. The self-making of man through labour invoked in 1844 manuscripts contained Marx's version of of spontaneity and freedom as essential human attributes. And it played a major part in the picture of the energy, dynamism and forward movement of the forces of production, uh, as described in the Communist Manifesto in 1848. Labour as a form of activity meant a continuous process of interaction with nature, but not one simply driven by need, for as the manuscripts emphasised, it could also be associated with freedom, for man could shape things according to the laws of beauty. He made that same point in the Grundrisse in the 1850s. Labour as the activity of self-directed individuals was purposive and teleological. The resistance to be overcome in any labour process was either natural, the operation of causal mechanisms in the physical world, or historical, the conflict it might occasion with existing social relations Uh, for instance, between employers and employed. In this sense, human history might be understood as the continual and cumulative process of interaction between teleology and causality. In the light of this approach, the depiction of man as a passive being or as a consumer dependent upon nature to supply his needs became Marx's principal criticism of contemporary socialism. And that's why his so-called Theses on Feuerbach, written in 1845, were as much a criticism of the socialism of the time as of Feuerbach himself. Man was not just a sensuous being. He also made himself through the practical use of his senses. The sensuous world experienced by man was the result of human industry and the state of society. This was reiterated in Marx's third thesis on Feuerbach, which argued that, quote, the materialist doctrine concerning the changing of circumstances and upbringing forgets that circumstances are changed by men and that the educator uh, must himself be educated. And it also explained why uh, uh, Marx's objection to the French socialist Pierre Proudhon. The labour question was not simply about consumption or wages, as Proudhon seemed to think the ambition of organised workers was not simply to attain greater happiness through the acquisition of more material goods, but to change productive relations. True communism was, quote, the positive transcendence of private property as human self-estrangement. It was the idea that freedom was self-activity and that the capacity to produce was man's most essential characteristic that led man. Led, led Marx in 1844 to conclude that estranged labour formed the basis of all other forms of estrangement and therefore the whole of human servitude was involved in the relation between the worker and production. For estranged labour was the inversion of what he called conscious life activity. Man's essential being became a mere means to his existence. In Kantian terms, this meant that wage work should be considered as a form of heteronomy, an inversion of freedom that is conceived as the self-activity of the producer. In the light of the strong distinction he made between history and nature, particularly in his 1844 writings, evidence of Marx's philosophical distance from Darwin in the 1860s is no longer surprising. Darwin did not believe that history possessed any unilinear meaning or direction. As he, as Darwin wrote in The Descent of Man in 1871, I believe in no fixed law of development. And Marx objected that Darwin seemed to consider progress as being merely accidental, and that historical and political applications of his work were comparatively insignificant. It is clear, therefore, that the differences of attitude towards Darwin between Marx and Engels in the 1860s are best understood as the continuation of an earlier and important division of opinion, though one that they never explicitly articulated beginning in the 1840s. The focal point of difference then concerned interpretation of Malthus, which, as in the case of Darwin, raised similar questions about the relationship between history and nature the divergent positions mattered because it became of practical importance in the definition of what became known in the 20th century particularly as marxism a, a process which in the politics of in which the politics of marx and the broader philosophy which underlay it became submerged beneath the nature-based viewpoint of engels the significance and extent of the difference between marx and engels on these questions has not generally been discussed historians have tended to treat the discussion of Malthus found in the writings of Marx and Engels as part of a single shared critique. This was the emphasis found in Ronald Meek's Marx and Engels on Malthus in in 1953, a standard anthology which highlighted both the supposed monstrosity of Malthus and stressed his role as the defender of bourgeois class interest. Closer examination of relevant texts Suggest, however, important differences of approach between Marx and Engels. Initially, Marx was happy to reiterate the attack on Malthus, which Engels had originally developed in his critique of of political economy in 1843. In 1844, for instance, in an essay attacking uh, one of the young Hegelians, Arnold Ruger, Marx derided the acceptance by the English Parliament of Malthus's, quote, philanthropic theory, according to which, quote, pauperism in general was an eternal law of nature and was defined as poverty, which the workers have brought upon themselves by their own fault, and treated, therefore, not as a misfortune to be alleviated, but as a crime which has to be suppressed and punished. Marx and Engels' agreement on the reactionary character of Malthusianism obscured differences of political philosophical formation, particularly, again, on this question about history and nature. On this question, the fundamental difference was between, on the one hand, Engels, Malthus and Owen, and on the other hand, uh, Marx. Malthus himself, it's important to remember, like Robert Owen and, and later Engels, believed that man was a passive being shaped by nature. In Malthus's essay, drawing essay on population, drawing upon the tradition of natural theology, mankind was likened to pieces of clay, moulded into unique shapes, but with no control over how they were moulded. The nature he discussed had been specifically designed by God. Ultimately, the advance from savagery to civilization was not a human achievement. This advance had been the effect of of, quote, a mighty process of God, a process necessary to awaken inert, chaotic matter into spirit. In Owen's thought, man's determination by an external environment governed by competition was the product of ignorance and could be remedied by science and education. In Engels, the determination of humans as sensuous beings by external environments, or what Engels was later to call the materialist conception of history, was the product of the, quote, unconscious condition of mankind in the absence of species consciousness. In its absence, men were no different from animals. This unconscious state of mankind was to be ascribed to the distortions produced by religion and private property. As the result of this lack of species consciousness, man, like any other animal, was a creature wholly determined by nature. In Marx, by contrast, human history remained distinct from natural history, whether man possessed species consciousness or not. Man was not simply a sensuous being, as he had been portrayed by Feuerbach. The sensuous world was in fact the result of human industry and the state of society. Man was determined not by nature but by history, even if that history had taken a perverse form. Competition and the capitalist mode of production had nothing to do with nature. In subsequent writings, in the 1850s and 60s, Marx remained as insistent as he had been in 1844 that history and nature must be kept apart. In the Grundrisse, which was his first draft of Capital, uh, written in, 18, or in 1857, his principal criticism directed at the theory of population was Malthus's attempt to conflate once again history and nature. Not only did uh, Malthus consider overpopulation as of the same kind in different historical phases of economic development, but he reduced, quote, to quote Marx, those very complicated and changing relations to one relation in which, on the one hand, the natural propagation of mankind, on the other, the natural propagation of edible plants or means of subsistence, and the, these two things confront each other as two natural series: the one geometric, the other arithmetic in progression. In this way, Malthus transforms historically distinct relations into an abstract numerical relation which he simply plucks out of thin air and which is based on neither natural or historical laws. And Marx goes on, the monkey, he calls him, went on, the monkey assumed that the increase of mankind is a purely natural process which requires external constraints or checks if it is not to proceed geometrically. In Capital, Marx again repeated his main point about the conflation of history and nature and at the same time added a sharper political edge. He says, it was of course far more convenient and much more in conformity with the interests of the ruling class whom Malthus adored like a true priest to explain this overpopulation by the eternal laws of nature rather than by the historical laws of capitalist development. By contrast, in Engels' later writings, the position he had taken over from Feuerbach remained. In the unconscious state of mankind, as in Malthus, though for different reasons, human and natural history are conflated. In his book called Anti-During, human society as much as the natural world was subject to to the Darwinian struggle and this would only come to an end with the disappearance of class society. According to Engels, the struggle for individual existence disappears. Then for the first time, man in a certain sense is finally marked off from the rest of the animal kingdom and emerges from mere animal conditions into really human ones. In the years immediately after Marx's death, Engels did his best to erase any perceived difference between his own thinking and that of Marx. But let us remember that Marx had never mentioned the materialist conception of history. This was a phrase of Engels. Yet Engels introduced it as part of a supposedly joint project. In 1885, in an essay on the history of the Communist League, Engels recalled his first extended meeting with Marx in Paris in, 18, in August 1844. He says, when I visited Marx in Paris in the summer of 1844, our complete agreement in all theoretical fields became evident and our joint work dates from that time. And he went on, when in the spring of 1845 we, we met again, Marx had already fully developed his materialist theory in its main features. These claims were misleading. Marx and Engels converged on certain points of current interest, the espousal of Feuerbach, though for somewhat different reasons, the adoption of a socialist rather than a republican agenda, and above all, a belief in the central importance of political economy. But Marx did not accept the fundamental continuity between natural and human history, as argued by the Darwinists. Darwin's theory could not accommodate Marx's belief that the first form of human society, the village community, preceded private property, patriarchy and therefore the class struggle as well. Class struggle and competition were not the result of nature-driven necessity, but consequences of man making his history in alien circumstances. For Marx, man remained not just a natural being, but a human natural being whose engagement in social struggle was a product of a distinctively man-made and man-made social and cultural institutions class struggle and competition were not therefore to be regarded as resulting from the inherent animality of humans but from heteronomy the shaking, shaping of their behavior by alien forces it was private property and patriarchy reinforced by religion which had reduced man to an apparently animal condition of which class, struggle and competition were the expression. So now, just to sum up, state and, and try and place Marx um, in, into his own historical context in the, in the 19th century, something which is virtually never done, stepping back from the late 19th century and 20th century trend to align Marx and Darwin, we should restore Marx... Uh, to the original historical and intellectual context in which he is formed. In this respect, it's important not only to situate back, Marx back in the 19th century, but also to locate him more precisely in the generation to which he belonged. His was a generation of writers whose work on the transition from ancient to modern society preceded the impact of Darwin. It included... Henry, Ma- Henry Maine, Bachhoven, MacLennan, Henry Morgan, uh, all of these were born between 1818 and 1827. And what's interesting is that all were lawyers for whom the study of early or primitive society was not a branch of natural history, but of legal studies, of which political economy in the 19th century was often considered to be a part. The institutions upon which they focused Private property, the state, marriage and the family were also primarily legal. So these writers were neither travel writers nor social anthropologists in a later sense, even if Morgan made contact with the American Iroquois and Maine became part of the Indian administration. Their sources, the sources of these writers, were mainly classical or biblical. They drew especially upon the Pentateuch, Roman law and Greek mythology from the patriarchal despotism of Abraham through the Ten Commandments and the Twelve Tables to Prometheus and the misdeeds of the gods of Olympus to the rape of the Sabines and so on. Fundamental to their concerns was an equation between history, development and progress, whether from status to contract, from private property to the end of human prehistory, from societas to civitas. All, in their different ways, believed that history meant was the means by which progress could be measured—a progressive movement from lower to higher stages of development, whether of forms of property, mode of production, types of kinship relation, or marriage custom or law. At its optimistic extreme, as Marx expressed it, history was the means by which man would make a complete, what he called a complete return to himself as a social, and he puts in bracket, i.e., human being a return accomplished consciously and embracing the entire wealth of previous development. In his writings and notes made from the late 60s to the time of his death, this sharp distinction between the historical and the natural was yet again recapitulated by Marx. He was particularly impressed by what he took to be convincing evidence of the existence in classical times of village communities governed by local assemblies, of citizens resting upon individual or tribal possession of the fields, together with the sharing of common preserves or marks in the surrounding woods and pastures. This was originally a Teutonic conception associated with Westphalia and Justice Mirza, uh, but from from 1815 onwards it was progressively extended, first to the Russian Mir and then to the Indian village, as a component part of what, ...came to be called Indo-European civilization. Such arguments were associated with a succession of writers... Uh, ...ranging from Karl Eichhorn, uh, August von Haxthausen, Joseph Grimm and George von Maurer... ...to, Joseph Kem- to John Campbell and Henry Mayne and Lewis Henry Morgan. Marx was particularly impressed by arguments for the Antiquity and Survival of the Russian Peasant Commune from Nikolai Chernyshevsky and his followers. And in response to a query from Vera Sasilich and the Group for the Emancipation of Labour in 1881, he committed himself to the defence of the Russian Peasant Commune and resistance to Russian capitalist development. But, this is to end up, this was a set, set of beliefs which by the 1880s was already beginning to look outmoded. The historical evidence to support the claims for the mark or the village community were devastatingly attacked by the French historian Fustel de Coulanges. In the case of the Russian Mir, far from being a primitive form of communal property dating back to ancient times, Chitterin demonstrated that it was introduced, in fact, in 1592, as an act of despotic government by the Tsar Fedor Ivanovich. Engels was therefore on strong grounds when in 1894 he attacked Chernyshevsky for encouraging, quote, a faith in the miraculous power of the peasant commune to bring about a social renaissance. The alternative developed by Engels, along with many other disenchanted 1848 revolutionaries, was to place their hopes of progress in in a form of materialism, which was allegedly in tune with the discoveries of natural science. It was not therefore surprising that the new generation of socialists of the 1870s and 80s were happy to accept Engel's claim that, quote, when I visited Marx in Paris in the summer of 1844, our complete agreement in all theoretical fields became evident, and our joint work dates from this time. Engels' approach opened the way for the next generation to adopt a wholly Darwinian reading of what they understood to be a Marxist understanding of history. According to Plakhanov, the reputed father of Russian Marxism, politics and the relations of production were of secondary importance. Both economy and psychology, as Plakhanov defined them, were products of, the state of productive forces now equated with the struggle for existence. The struggle for existence creates their economy and on the same basis arises their psychology as well. Similarly, Karl Kautsky, editor of the Neue Zeit, and major Marxist theorist of the Second International, made an even bolder conflation between human and natural history. He was particularly concerned to locate, uh, to prove the universality of the, quote, social instincts, whether in plant, animal or human world. It was these organic instances, in, sorry, it was these organic instincts and drives, which Kautsky thought to underlie what philosophers had defined as ethics. In the 20th century, this assumption of a joint theory became a canonical point of orthodoxy among communists, determined to defend the seamless unity of what they called Marxism. This was maintained even when material evidence appeared suggesting that Marx's approach had been different. In 1911, going through papers of Marx's uh, son-in-law, Paul Lafargue, the pioneer Marx scholar David Rezanov came across several drafts of Marx's letter to Vera Sasolich, which endorsed what had subsequently become known as the Narodnik, or populist, defence of the viability of the peasant commune. And in, 18, and in 1923, Marx's actual letter turned up, but so thoroughly had Engels the materialist and Darwinist reading of Marx's triumph that none of the surviving members of the uh, Geneva group for the emancipation of labour remembered receiving such a letter. Uh, so they actually denied having received a letter from Marx, uh, which was his major statement of position. So that uh, I will end it. Thank you very much.